For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to that of his glorious body. Philippians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. Several weeks ago, I was asked, or maybe even shorter than that, if I would preach a lesson on, will we know one another in heaven? That is a question which is of grave concern for many folks. They want to know after this life is over, when we stand in eternity, will we know our loved ones, will we know our friends? I want to begin by pointing out to you, to whom do you go for questions, perhaps better stated, to whom do you go for answers about the afterlife? We cannot go to the philosophers, even though I know philosophers are people who like to imagine situations and imagine various solutions to those situations. But you know, God's Word clearly says in 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 18, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know God. But it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. This world may philosophize about what will happen, about what can happen, but they really have no information upon which to proceed. You can't also go to the scientist either. The scientist may want to test, to go through his method of having a hypothesis and seeing if that meets those qualifications. But when it comes to the afterlife, they have no means of testing. And so afterlife is beyond the purview of the scientist and the philosophers. If one wants to know about these kind of things, what is true, you have to go to God's Word. In Acts 17 and verse 11, Luke records, and these were more noble, more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica, in that they received the word with all readiness and searched the scriptures daily whether those things, or to find out whether those things are so. We need to be able to look at God's word and see the answers to the questions we face in life. And yet, we have to realize that not everything about eternity has been revealed. There's so much that you and I do not know about what God's plans will be. Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 4, how he was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words which it is not lawful for a man to utter. A man does not, as Paul here says, have the right to speak about those things which he had saw, 
he had seen in his life. So we realize as we approach this, there's a limit beyond which we cannot go. We can't say everything about what is in eternity. But I do believe that God's Word has answered this question. So what we're going to do is look at three things. We're going to look first of all at personality. What does it mean to be you? What does it mean to be me? Number two, we want to look at the problems that people have with this. We want to take the questions, we want to take the difficulties to face them head on and look at them from Scripture. And then number three, which is in my judgment the key part of this is we want to go to the passage of Scripture which deal with this and answer the question. Let's begin first of all with the idea of personality. If I were to ask you, how do you identify self? How do you know that you are who you are, the me? You know, that's a real significant question and one which I believe the Bible has a direct answer to. For instance, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 11, Paul writes, For what man knows the things of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, no one knows the things of God except the spirit of God. Who knows you? I know me. I know what's in my mind. I know what I'm thinking. I know my identity. I think you do too. But that part of your identity is what is in your mind, which is what is in your spirit. Solomon, in the book of Proverbs, chapter 20, verse 27 says, The spirit of man is the lamp of the Lord, searching all the inner depths of his heart. When you start talking about the man, you have to talk about who he is, what he thinks, what's in his heart. Along with that, you have to ask the questions, what is life and what is death? What do those terms really mean? In Genesis 2 and verse 7, we begin at the creation of man and learn that the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and he became a living being. That's what made man alive. You know, you can have the dust of the earth, but without the breath of God there is no life. It's when God brings that life into those physical elements that you do have life. But I also understand when death occurs. James 2 and verse 26 says, For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. You take the physical body and you take the spirit from it, and then that's when death occurs. Life and death. With that understanding, you understand there's more to man than just his physical part. There's more to man than his spiritual part. And our bodies are merely a temporary dwelling place for us on this earth. As you think about your body, I would point you to 2 Corinthians. As you end chapter 4, verses 16 and following, he would say that though our outward man is perishing, yet our inward man is being renewed 
day by day. He then moves into chapter 5 and puts it like this. For we know that if our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation which is from heaven. If indeed having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we who are in this tent, grown, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed, that mortality may be swallowed up by life. What is Paul trying to convey? That our physical bodies is but a tent. It's a temporary dwelling place where you and I live, but we are looking for the better one which will be eternal in the heavens. Which brings up the idea, what happens at death? We have tried to answer this question on several occasions, but I think it's worthy of our time to try to review it just for a moment or two. The body returns to the dust. When Solomon wrote Ecclesiastes, he said, the dust will return to the earth as it was. That is, our physical bodies will go through a decay process and the elements will return back to the very elements that were a part of this earth. The latter part of that verse goes on to say, in the Spirit to God who gave it. But then the Spirit will go to Hades. Not heaven, not hell. That's not until the resurrection. When you and I die today, our spirit will go to Hades. Now let me explain that. The Bible is very plain on that subject. Let me just give you a few of these passages. Just a few moments ago we were remembering the Lord's death. and One of the things that he said while he was on the cross to that robber on his right, he said, Assuredly, I say today, today you will be with me in paradise. Today you will be with me in paradise. When I go to Acts chapter 2, looking at verses 27 and 31, I learn what Jesus meant by that. Verse 27. For you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. The soul goes to Hades. The body goes to the grave, normally corrupts. Jesus did not. Verse 31. He, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. Jesus didn't stay in Hades, nor did his body stay in the grave. So when I understand what death is, I understand it's in separation of the body and the spirit, and to where each goes. In Luke 16, 23, And being in torments in Hades, he lifted his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. The rich man was in a part of Hades known as torments. Lazarus, the robber who had asked Jesus, and Jesus himself were in a place called paradise. John chapter 17, though, explains that this is not heaven. John 20, 17, Jesus said to her, 
Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my Father. But go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and to your Father and to my God and your God. Very plainly, Jesus said, I've not yet been to where my Father is at. He had been to Hades, but he had not been to heaven. In John 14, 1 through 4, Jesus said, Let not your heart be troubled. Do you believe in God? Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. Where is he going to go? He's going to go to prepare heaven for us. The key to this marvelous event is the resurrection. In preparing this, I thought perhaps maybe I have not preached enough on the glory, the marvelous event that's going to take place, which is called the resurrection. This is where one can proclaim victory over death, that is the grave, and Hades, the place of the Spirit. Listen to 1 Corinthians 15, verses 54 through 58. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin. The strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Folks, what he is saying is victory is when the resurrection day comes for us. Jesus is pictured as having control and power over that day. In Revelation 1 and verse 18, I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys to Hades and death. Revelation chapter 20, 13. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. We understand that death and Hades refers both to the grave and to the place of the soul. Now I think I have established the personality of man is his spirit. I think I have established what is involved with life and death. But now you have to understand that there are people who say, but we can't know one another in heaven. And one of the objections was raised before our Lord with regards to the future of the resurrection. And it's found in the Sadducean discussion in Matthew 22, beginning with verse 23. And there we read the same day the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him and asked him, saying, Teacher, Moses said, If a man dies having no children, his brother shall marry his wife and raise up offspring for him. Or for his brother. Now there were with us seven brothers. The first died after he had married, and having no offspring, he left his wife to his brother. Likewise, the second also, the third, even to the seventh. 
Last of all, the woman died also. Therefore, in the resurrection, whose wife of the seven will she be? For they all had her. You see, the Sadducees had put before the Lord a question which they felt proved that there was no resurrection. Now here's how Jesus will respond. You are mistaken. You err not knowing the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels of heaven. But concerning the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Now, when I understand that, first thing I notice here, they completely denied the resurrection. If I look at the Sadducees and think, well, they've got a point, I've got to step back and say, what point do they have? They didn't believe that there was a resurrection at all. And if you deny the resurrection, where does that leave you? Paul answered that important issue. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he said in verse 12 through 17, Now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not risen. And if Christ has not risen, then our preaching is empty, and your faith is also empty. Yes, and we're found false witnesses of God because we testified that God raised him up. Or raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead do not rise. And if the dead do not rise, and Christ is not risen, and if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile, it's vain, and you are still in your sins. You take the resurrection out of the teaching of the Bible, and you gut it of everything that is good and right and proper. You take away the forgiveness of our sins. So the Sadducees were not right. But I think it's also worthy of noticing that their question primarily related to the physical procreation. They refer back to the Old Testament law of called the Leveret Law that if a man marries and he does not have a child, he does not have offspring, then the brother is to marry and raise up offspring to his brother, to him. To wear his family name. What they were concerned was with the physical procreation. Because Jesus answered that by saying. In Mary, in the eternity there's neither marriage nor giving in marriage. There's no sexual relationship there. The second problem that is raised is some struggle with the nature of the resurrected body. And Paul also addressed that in 1 Corinthians. He talks about the body. Notice with me if you begin 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 35. But some will say, how are the dead raised and with what body do they come? Notice the resurrection is when the body is raised up from the tomb and joined back with the spirit that comes out of that Hadean realm. And the question is, what about that body? Notice verse 42. So also is the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption. 
it is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in honor or raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. There will be a body raised. John 5, 28 and 29. Marvel not at this. For the hour comes in which all that are in the tombs will hear his voice and come forth. They that have done good to the resurrection of life, they that have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. A third problem that is raised is some struggle with the idea that if they were to know one another in eternity, that they would be able to look around and know that some of their family, some of their friends were not there, and they asked the question, how could we be happy in eternity if we know that some of our loved ones are not there? That is perhaps the most difficult of the questions to answer, but the truth is it's a matter of choice. In the Bible, God wants everyone to be saved. 1 Timothy 2, 4, 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9. And yet some choose to not serve Him, even some of our loved ones. I would imagine that every one of us have loved ones that we really care about, that we would really love for their souls to be saved. And yet we know they're making the choice and some of them will continue to make the choice not to obey the Lord. We will have to understand that in eternity their choices will be honored. And though we might know they're not there, that I think probably doubts God's ability to provide for us a wonderful place where there will be no more sorrow, no pain, or no crying. Now let's address what I think is perhaps the best way to approach this, and that is the passages. Anytime I have a biblical question, a biblical inquiry, I need to go to find the relevant passages, and I have several, so I'm going to try to go through these as swiftly as possible to hit the point and then move on to the next one. If you want to take your Bibles, we'll go to Matthew chapter 17, verses 1 through 4. This is known as the Mount of Transfiguration, the Transfiguration of our Lord. Now after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as the light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. Then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, let us make here three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Now just think for just a moment here. They appeared unto them. That is Peter, James, and John. 
they knew that this was Moses and Elijah. They recognized them. We know that they were talking with Moses and Elijah, him, Jesus. They knew he, who Jesus was. He knew who they were. There's recognition there. I think when you go to Mark's account, chapter 12, verses 26 and 27, but concerning the dead that they rise, have you not read the book of Moses in the burning bush passage? How God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. You are therefore greatly mistaken. Moses talked about, I am the God of Abraham. Present tense. So when I understand this, Moses and Elijah are alive recognizable and talking with Jesus. Second passage, Luke 16, verses 19 through 31. I know you know this passage well, the account of the rich man and Lazarus. And Luke records, there was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at his gate, desiring to be fed from the crumbs that fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. So it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And being in torments in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Then he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. And Abraham said, Son, remember in your lifetime you received good things and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he is comforted and you are tormented. And besides all this, between us and you there is a great gulf fixed, so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. And then he said, I beg you therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may testify to them, lest they come to this place of torment. Abraham said to him, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if one goes from the dead, they will repent. But he said, They do not um, hear Moses and the prophets, nor will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. There's so much in this, but let me just point out to you. The rich man in this disembodied state recognized Abraham. He recognized Lazarus. He was able to communicate with Abraham to say, send Lazarus to dip his finger in water and cool my tongue. He knew who he was. In verse 25, Abraham said, son, remember. That means you, you think back about what had happened here on this earth. He had to have remembered what he had and what Lazarus had. You come to verses 27 and 28. He remembered he had five brethren. He knew he loved his brethren. He was concerned about their future. 
there is no way that a person could say, we don't know who we are and we don't know who others are in eternity without this passage being totally meaningless. Let's keep going. Luke 24, verse 39. Very simple statement. Jesus says, Behold my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Handle me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. They recognized Jesus. In fact, to the point that Jesus said, I want you to look at my resurrected body. Look at it. And in their looking at it, they knew who he was with discernible characteristics. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 19 and 20. This is one of the ones that I thought was rather remarkable. Paul said, For what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Is it not you, even you, in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? You are our glory and joy. Paul is looking forward to the time when Jesus will come again. And he says, my glory, my joy will be you Thessalonians. On the day of judgment, I don't know the names of those people, but Paul did. Paul could look at them and he could point and say, on the day of judgment, you are my joy, you make me happy. If you didn't know who they were, that would be awful difficult to do. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. The passage that was read earlier for us by David, one of the greatest comforting passages due to time. I'm not going to read it again, but I do want to draw attention to the fact of a couple of things. He talks about those who sleep in Jesus. God will bring with him. What does it mean to sleep in Jesus? That means to be a child of God who's passed from this life. John chapter 11, verses 11 through 14 talks about the Lord's close friend Lazarus. How he had become sick and they were going to see him. Then he says, after that, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I may go wake him up. Then his disciples said, Lord, if he sleeps, he'll get well. Jesus spoke of his death, but they thought he was speaking about taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. Sleeping in Jesus refers to those who pass from this life. Verse 18 says, Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. And then I want to go back to 1 Corinthians 15 for just a moment. Look at verses 50 through 58 and then we'll tie all this together. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption. This mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible is put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The strength of death is sin, or the sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, 
be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. It would be an awful hollow victory to say that we have conquered death because of what Jesus has done to say, but I don't know who I am and I don't know where I'm at. For us to be able to be who we are would involve us knowing that we ourselves have conquered, that we have a victory and that we have the right to, and that is a motivator for us to be steadfast and faithful. I read several different people attribute this to different folks. They were all old Scottish preachers. I don't know which one it is correct. I'm assuming that it is all correct. But an old Scottish preacher's wife asked him if he thought he would know her in heaven. I liked his response. I know you here, and I think I'll have at least as much sense in heaven as here. And you know, really when you get down to it, that's the thought that I think most of us want to think about. I hope that in eternity, in fact I am confident that in eternity, that you and I will know one another in our glorified bodies, and that will be one great eternal joy to be able to enjoy that blessing of our being together. But you know, here's something. If you are not a Christian, you don't get to enjoy that. That's the benefit, that's the privilege of being a Christian, that you get to enjoy an eternity in heaven. But you don't have to miss that. You can, because you believe in Jesus Christ, repent of your sins, confess your faith in Him, and be baptized. We'll be glad this morning to stop everything else that's going on and be sure that you are baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins. And what a glory is yours to enjoy. Folks, let's face reality. Sometimes for many of us, that was our goal, that was our aspiration. But we become distracted by this world and all that it offers, which is only temporary. And we allow ourselves to be drawn back by the devil. And those of us who are Christians can end up missing that great reward because we've given up on it. Don't let your soul lose that great reward. If you have sins that need to be repented of, let's deal with them this morning as we approach our Father in prayer. Would you come while together we stand and sing?